0: All right, good morning. Would you pray with me to ask the Lord to bless bless this message? Father God in heaven, we are so thankful, Lord, for your love for us. Uh, Lord, this morning we commit our hearts and our minds to you this morning. May you be glorified in what is preached and received this morning and what is heard. We know that you are holy and that you do not need us, but in your kindness and by your grace you chose us in your Son. The Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our lives to convict us of sin, to love you more, to love one another more. And may we be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by your word, into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So I want you to know I spent some time thinking about an introduction to this morning's message. But it was really hard, because this morning, talking about suffering... We're going to be in a passage that talks about suffering. So how do you pick just one illustration, one story to cover suffering? We all suffer. In one way or another, we all suffer, and we need to understand a biblical view of suffering. I remember uh, going to this gym in Alaska. It's on this treadmill, and they have all these TVs in front of you. And so on one TV is Fox News, another one CNN, and they're covering the same event. Completely different interpretations. This morning we're going to be looking at a story about Hannah, a woman who experienced great suffering. We need to know the right worldview to understand her suffering. And that's going to t- teach us as Christians how to endure suffering. And so this morning's message is on faith. That endures suffering. So, the hope that we'll find is that there is faith that endures suffering. So, Hannah's story is nicely outlined with the basic elements of a narrative. There is an introductory setting in the first few verses, and the author is going to give us background information in order to understand Hannah's story through the lens of God's plan of redemption. So, on one hand, there's suffering in the story but the story is not just about suffering it's about God's plan of redemption so after this introductory setting what we're going to see is that we're going to be introduced to a crisis so with this crisis Hannah experiences severe suffering and then this crisis is going to develop into a climax of the story and Hannah's going to have to make a decision in how she's going to deal with her suffering and that's going to be part of the message where we're going to learn the lesson, two, along with Hannah. And then fourth, this climax is going to be resolved by a personal deliverance of Yahweh. And it's going to nicely conclude with Yahweh graciously turning every part of Hannah's life around to the good. So follow along with me as I read 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham the son of Elihu son of Tohu son of Zoph and Ephrathite he had two wives the name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah and Peninnah had children but Hannah had no children now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, to all his sons and daughters, excuse me, her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, For all I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then a the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for, she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah in all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you wait only until you have weaned him only may the lord establish his word so the woman remained and nursed her son until she was weaned until she weaned him and when she had weaned him she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bowl an ephah of flour and a skin of wine and she brought him to the house of the Lord of Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child that prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, and he is, in, and he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. That is a very long story i'm not going to take a lot of time to dissect every uh, little paragraph there um, but there's definitely a lot that is worth to be covered um, what i want to draw our attention to first are these first opening verses verses one through three as we read these verses there are certain things that stand out where the author is giving us the right lens to understand the story how God wants us to view the story and you can summarize it is that we're supposed to understand the story theologically. There is more going on than what we see. God has a plan. God is in control. Everything we see in this story, God intended it. This is God's plan. So, first what we see, if you look at verse 1, it says there was a certain man of Ramathaim-Zophim with the language here where this man is being introduced, it actually would have sounded familiar to the the readers of 1 Samuel. And as we learn about the story, as we learn about how Hannah has a son named Samuel, we're, we're taken back to the book of Judges. Because in the book of Judges, there was another woman who was barren, there was another woman who was visited by the Lord, and the Lord gave her a son And the Lord had this son be, um, had the Nazarite vow, and the Lord told this woman that her son would begin to deliver Israel. This man's name, the son's name is Samson. He did everything but help deliver Israel. He was an unqualified leader. He sinned, he broke probably almost every law you could think about. And because of that, the Lord, because of his covenant with Israel, judged Israel, brought calamity on them because they had this bad leader. They were also sinners too. So as we're reading this we're thinking, okay, this is, Sam, this is Samson 2.0, except the Lord is actually going to use this man named Samuel, whose mother was also barren, and who Samuel also takes the Nazarite vow, just like Samson, But the Lord's actually, as we see in the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel, going to use him to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So that's the direction that we're going. And by putting this first here in the book, the author wants us to understand that this whole story is part of God's plan. There's something bigger going on here than just barrenness. Okay, there's a second thing the author wants us to understand the importance of this story. If you look down um, in verse two, actually finishing verse 1, we are given a genealogy of Elkanah. And right after Elkanah's genealogy, we find out one of his wives was barren. She couldn't have children. In the book of Genesis, the Lord gave Abraham a promise that he would multiply his descendants as many as the stars of the sky and sand of the seashore. So what do we see here? We see Elkanah doing pretty good. Right? His lineage are doing really good, and Hannah's not. Here's the thing for the promise to Abraham. It was to him and his descendants. The men and the women, they, when they had children, they knew it was a gift from the Lord. When they had numerous children, they knew that was a gift to the Lord because of what God promised to Abraham. To them, having children wasn't just merely a, a cultural blessing. It was a theological blessing that they were part of God's plan. What do we see here? What about Hannah? Does Hannah get to be a part of God's plan? So this brings us immediately thinking about God's promise to Abraham. Now, Hannah's being barren, and this is a good reminder for us to think about the theology of suffering, the theology of pain, the theology of hard times. We have to remember, we have to go back to Genesis there's suffering in the world, there's pain in the world, there's misery in the world because of sin. The suffering that is here, it's because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. So we can't look at any sufferer as completely innocent, as innocent. So that being said, that draws our attention back to these themes of God's promise to Abraham, to God's promise in Genesis 3.15, that he would reverse the curse, he would restore his creation by providing a certain seed who would crush the head of Satan. Okay, third, lastly, this story is about communion with the Lord. If you look down at verse three, we see that Elkanah, first of all, let's talk about Elkanah for a moment. We see here he had two wives. First wife, Hannah, couldn't have children. So what does he do? Oh, I'll find another wife and maybe she'll have children. What should have Elkanah done? He should have waited for the Lord to provide. And the, I guess if you would call it ironic part, is that the Lord does provide a son for Hannah. So Elkanah should have waited. He was thinking maybe about his future and his success, and he was concerned with all those things. But we know that in Genesis, the Lord designed marriage between one man and one woman until death do them part. We know that's set up. So now with that, we we get to know a little bit more about Elkanah here in verse 3. In verse 3, what do we find out about him? We see that he took his family to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts. At Shiloh and this he did every year. So what do we know about Elkanah? He's consistently going to a place of worship and we see his heart's in the right place because it says he goes there to worship. The word therefore that's used for worship talks about his heart. It talks about how his heart is submissive to the ways and to Yahweh. That he is submissive to him and also he went to sacrifice. Back then, sacrifices were a picture of what God was doing with his people, and they were also a picture of what was supposed to be happening in our hearts. So what does he do? He's basically taking his family to Sunday school, to church. He's being faithful with that. And just for a moment, here's what's really interesting. In the book of Exodus, there's a law given that the men of the families are to go to the temple every year. But the law is only for the men. The expectation, the men's going to go there, learn from the priests about God's word, and also bring back God's word to their families and teach them. Elkanah does a step above. He brings his family with them. So again, while Elkanah um, had his problems, he should have trusted the Lord, we do see a picture of a father um, doing what he can, being faithful to take his family to worship. And what was supposed to be happening there the people of God were supposed to be experiencing communion with the Lord. Worshiping Him, learning from His Word, doing these sacrifices. The purpose of the sacrifices was not to have faith in those sacrifices as if those sacrifices could forgive their sin. The sacrifices pointed to the, to the Lord who would one day provide forgiveness of sins through a certain sacrifice. This was the communion that was supposed to be happening. Okay, so now we have the introduction, and we've been introduced to this crisis, right? Hannah doesn't have children. And so what verses 4 through 8 does is that it takes that crisis, and it's going to give us four pictures of how Hannah was suffering. So first, what we're going to see in verse 4 is that Hannah suffered even when people around her were treating her nicely, specifically Elkanah. If you look down at verse 4, we read that on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina and his wife and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So Elkanah here is treating Hannah extra nice, but she's still suffering. Looking for things for people to treat you nice, yes, it's good to be treated nice, But we have to know, looking for those external things doesn't hide suffering. It doesn't fix the suffering. If anything, what we see here is that by giving double, it's to replace the baby she didn't have. So it's actually a reminder that she didn't have a child. So we have Hannah suffering at this time where she's supposed to be communing with the Lord. The sacrifice is supposed to be teaching about her relationship with the Lord. Okay, second, in verses 5 through 6, we see that it gets worse. Hannah is suffering from her enemy. And I use the word enemy here because when it says in verse, uh, excuse me, in verse 6, her rival used to provoke her, that language, rival, is the language of an enemy, of someone set against you. And so in some way, um, this The second wife is provoking her, is making her angry, making her suffer more by the words that she's using. I want to stop a moment and talk about this. Penina is not only an enemy to Hannah, but because she is mocking Hannah, that she's not partaking of this promise that God has for her, Penina is making herself an enemy of the Lord. Christians, believers, do not do that. We want believers around us to be blessed by God. We don't get jealous. We don't get angry. Penina here is being positioned as someone, not only an enemy of Hannah, but the enemy of the Lord. And we have plenty of those in our life, right? Um, More and more every day. And just like Hannah suffers through this, we often suffer through this. So we read that Hannah even though she's being treated nicely, she was suffering. It got worse. Her enemy was treating her miserably. And guess what? It gets even worse. We read in verse 7. So it went on year by year. This was suffering where there was no end in sight for Hannah. There was no end in sight. She had no idea when it was end. As far as she was concerned, maybe she, would be sing- maybe she would not have children the rest of her life. And if Penina was alive her entire life, then she would just get attacked until she died. So this was complete misery that would not end. Fourth, Hannah's suffering was inconsolable. Um, as we look at what Elkanah is saying in verse 8, he asks her questions, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So with his last statement there, there's two things we need to realize. One, yes, he was being insensitive. That's an insensitive question. But also, to Elkanah's perspective, Elkanah's thinking, I'm taking you to church all the time. I'm taking you to worship service. I'm giving you the best of the sacrifice. On one end, it is an, um, a fault on Elkanah for thinking that those things can replace suffering. On the other end, Elkanah was genuinely curious why it didn't work. And with us in our life, all the time, we're thinking what can hide the suffering? that I'm going through. What can hide the pain? What can hide the misery? And there are so many things that we in our life try to hide it with. Alcohol, drugs, um, entertainment on the TV. Uh, Maybe you've got a hobby and I'll just do this hobby in place of the suffering. Having hobbies are not bad, but the motive for having um, a hobby. So here's what Elkanah was, was asking. There's all these things. How come None of them are hiding your suffering. And the answer that we know is because nothing can hide the suffering, can truly hide it. So at this point, we've seen that Hannah is just suffering miserably. She's being treated nice. She has an enemy who's treating her, and she's suffering. She's suffering continuously. And also, people around her don't understand her suffering. So this is bringing us now to really the climax of the story. There's this climax of the story and what we're gonna see, we're gonna see two people compared to one another. We're gonna see a priest named Eli, and then we're gonna see Hannah. We're also gonna hear from Hannah for the first time. And Eli here is gonna be acting as what's called a foil. Something about Eli's character is gonna make something else stand out about Hannah. And what we're gonna see here is that Eli is ignorant toward God's word. Eli was a priest. One of his his responsibilities was to minister to the people there and to teach them God's word. And so we're introduced to Eli here in verse nine. It says, after they had eaten and they were drinking in Shiloh, Hannah got up, Hannah rose. Now it says, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And here is why that's important. The word that the author used here in Hebrew for seat is actually the word throne. So Eli was sitting on a seat, but to Eli it was a throne. Where was he sitting? The doorpost of the temple. Who sits on the throne in the temple in heaven? Yahweh does. Isaiah chapter 6 is very clear on that. So Eli here is being presented as someone who will not go to God in prayer when he's confronted by Hannah, but sits in a position where he thinks his words can actually help. So that also just really adds to the tension here. Now we get to hear from Hannah. And it's important, this entire story so far, the author has not told us what Hannah was actually thinking yet. And this is the part of the story where it's actually going to change direction. And for those of you who enjoy literary um, devices, this is actually called an anagnoresis. And then there's a peripatea. You don't have to write that down. It's okay. But it's important because these are literary devices where the author is keeping something from you and wants to let you know what Hannah is thinking at this moment of time, because this is the most important part of the story. So we're reading about Hannah in verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. The language here for how miserable she was um, is basically saying she's at the lowest point she possibly could be. She is in the pit of despondency. She is miserable. Year after year, this is built up. And so now this is the high point of the story. What will Hannah say? What is in her heart? This is what we're going to see about Hannah's heart. What we're going to see is that she has this inward submission to the sovereignty of Yahweh. That she her worldview is shaped by God's word, and we're going to see her desires are ruled by God's promises. And we see these things because if you look down at verse ten, or verse eleven, she vowed a vow and said, "O Lord of hosts," we'll I'll stop there. When she is vowing a vow what she is saying is that yahweh what i'm about to do is commit this is not just an average prayer where you pray the same thing over and over and over what she's about to say is coming from the deepest part of her heart and it's a commitment and then she says yahweh of hosts this language of hosts refers to the commander of an army so she is first of all admitting Her mind is admitting that Yahweh is in control about everything in her situation. There's not one thing Yahweh does not know. There's not one thing that Yahweh has not been in control of. That's how we should start our prayer every time. If we're praying for a friend, if we're praying for something hard in our life, the first place we have to come to and say is, Yahweh, Lord, Jesus, your will be done you're in control. I'm asking this from a posture of submission." Okay, now what we're going to see is that her worldview is shaped by God's Word. Here's what's amazing here. If you, as we read her words in verse 11, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son. Okay, let's stop there. The language that she's using, all of this, there's not one word in her prayer that's not from the Bible. So what does that tell us? She knew her Bible. One thing that helped her know her Bible is that her husband brought her to the worship service to be taught the word. She knew her Bible. Not only does she know her Bible, but when she's thinking about what's happening in her life, she's filtering it through what the Bible says. This language here where she's asking the Lord to look on her affliction and to remember, that's straight from the opening chapters of Exodus, where we see in heaven, we see the Lord looking down on Israel, seeing their affliction in bondage to Egypt. And what does he do? He remembers. This idea of the Lord remembering is not a like cognitive, like, oh, I forgot, like, where's my cell phone kind of thing. It's a, this language of remember is that god is about to act on something that he promised to his people and so what's hannah saying hannah's filtering her situation not as a oh i need to have children to make someone happy to make my husband happy, to make me happy she's filtering her situation that the lord promised children and descendants to abraham i am a child of abraham a descendant i want children and she's looking at all of that as in wanting to have children because it's part of God's plan. And we know that even more, because in, in the um, English versions, most of them will say son. The Hebrew word for son is Ben. So if you know someone named Benjamin, it's Yamin, son of my right hand, Ben. She doesn't use the word Ben here. It's the Hebrew word for descendant, for seed, for offspring. And that is a big word in the book of Genesis where God promised Abraham, remember, as many descendants as the stars of the sky and sand of the seashore. So she's thinking in terms of Exodus here, of the Lord's redemption and salvation. She's thinking in terms of the promise given to Abraham. She's looking at the misery in her life. She's real and she's going to the Bible with it. And then lastly, we learn that her desires were ruled by God's promises because she's telling the Lord, if you give me the son, no razor will touch his head. That's the language of a Nazarite vow. That's what that means right there. And so what she's saying is that when he's old enough, he can go to the temple and serve there all of his life. It wasn't that she wanted the son to be at the house and um, earn the money and, and help them with things. She was genuinely... Concerned about God's promises in her life Now The rest of verses 12 to 18 we can summarize it by her By Eli seeing her praying remember Eli's not going to God's Word He's not going to the Lord in prayer. So he sees her and he assumes she's drunk and Then she says I'm not drunk. I'm really sad And he's like, oh, okay, may the Lord just grant you whatever you're praying. He doesn't even ask her what she's praying about. I didn't mention it earlier, but they lived at the time of the judges, the darkest time in Israel's history. Who knows what she could have been praying for? And he doesn't ask, doesn't go to the Lord in prayer, doesn't ask what she's praying for. Just says, oh, yeah, may may the Lord grant you your wish. So his role in the story here is to act as this opposite, as this foil, where Hannah has the word of the Lord and is just completely spiritually blind. Now, in verse 19, the story comes to a resolution. In verses 12 to 18, it took a lot of space, uh, took a lot of time, excuse me, to talk about Eli and Hannah but it's going to talk about how the Lord remembered Hannah. The Lord remembered Hannah, and that word there is very important because it was, Hannah was asking to be remembered. So, And this is why I use the language of deliverance. And as we look at the rest of the story, we read, starting in verse 20, that Hannah conceived and had a son, what we're going to see from verse 20 to the end of the story is that the Lord is taking these different things we've seen in Hannah's life that were difficult and hard, and he's turning them around. So first in verse 20, what do we have? Hannah has a son. What do we see next? Verses 21 to 23, Hannah and Elkanah. If you go back to Elkanah, Elkanah should have trusted the Lord. For Elkanah, he needed a son to carry on the family name. He needed a a son to help him in his old age work around the house. So this is kind of a new moment for Elkanah because what we're seeing here in verses 21 to 23, Hannah is asking Elkanah, saying, I made this vow to the Lord. This son that I'm having, he, he actually can't stay at the house the rest of his life. Right? And Elkanah honors it. It would have been more profitable for that son to stay at the house. And so what we see, we just see the Lord in control, graciously turning around all these circumstances. And lastly, we see the Lord turning around that communion that she was supposed to have with the Lord. Verse 24 to 28, we read Hannah being personally involved in these sacrifices. Again, those sacrifices were to teach about her relationship with the Lord. And then verse 28 it concludes, and it's also giving us, preparing us for the rest of the book, says in the last verse, and he worshipped the Lord there, referring to Samuel. Samuel was in the temple, he's worshiping the Lord there. Now, here is what Samuel has ahead of him. Just as just as Hannah suffered and she had to trust in the Lord in her suffering, there's someone else gonna come up in 1 and 2 Samuel who's gonna suffer, gonna have a very special promise from God, and he has to trust in the Lord during his suffering. That's David. And what David's role in 1 and 2 Samuel is gonna be is that he's gonna pave the way, he's gonna look forward to someone else who suffered, and that's Christ someone else who suffered and had the trust in the Lord, in his suffering, and that's Christ. And this is really where the greatest hope for us comes from. It's because Christ died and suffered, and he trusted in the Lord. It was, um, I think two or three years ago, maybe three years ago, um, it was Christmas Day. And uh, it was a you know, wonderful Christmas present, received a uh, five-minute grand mal seizure. So it wasn't fun at all. It was terrible. I uh, was unconscious for 15 minutes afterwards. And here's the worst part though. I mean, I, I was out of it for most of the time. You know, when I had this seizure, um, I came to, I couldn't tell time had passed. Couldn't tell time had passed. So I had this daunting question when I started going to sleep every night. What happens when I die? And I was afraid to go to sleep every single night. And then one day it hit me, probably from a message or a sermon somewhere, there was a time when Christ was about to shut his eyes. And he trusted in the Lord. And he was okay. And he was more than okay. He was victorious. So in that suffering, in that moment, I knew I was going to be okay. And I don't share that story for any emotion. It's, it's because I want to let you know that this faith is real. It's real to me. I want, this faith, I want this faith to be real to you because God's promises are that real. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God in heaven, you are so good. Uh, Lord, you're so holy. Uh, Lord, you have, before time began, planned out your great plan of salvation, and we are so privileged to be a part of that plan, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you would just grow us. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would comfort us in our affliction and our suffering, and we commit ourselves and our lives to you. pray this in your Son's name. Amen.